Hi everybody, good to see everyone. So I was very moved today, uh, this week, and about the words grabbed me, when Rivka is crying out in pain, that the locus of that pain uh, should be her womb and the struggling infants in the womb, why me? And so I want to pick up actually uh, where Viva Zornberg left off. The Viva Zornberg psychoanalytical concept of Rivka and her travails. But let's go back to the Pshat first and then uh, go through Remes, Drush, and maybe end up with the Sod, the uh, mystical implications and um, what this means for Lomaze Onochi, why us? Why 2020? Why now? You know, this water-drawing woman, the very first words in the Chumash out of the mouth of Rivka is, Drink, my Lord. Genesis 24, 18. Drink, my Lord. And the Chumash emphasizes that Rivka was simply asked by Abraham's servant, Eliezer, Give me a little water from your jar. However, when Rivka had finished giving him the drink, she says, Let me also water your camels famously. And according to, to the Chumash, he came with 10 camels loaded, belonging to Avram. Now, any farmer who breeds livestock knows that a camel drinks 50 gallons of water at a go. And so, in fact, with her own little jar, she had to satisfy 10 thirsty animals. That makes it 500 gallons. And so she's not only a model of hospitality, uh, but but a Isha Hasida, a pious woman, willing to go beyond the limits of what's asked. And um, according to Breshit uh, Rabbah, the Medrash, Avram Avin already knew ahead of time that long before Isaac and Refka were wed, that she would be his daughter. The Medrash goes into her uh, virtuosity uh, in addition, by saying that she was a beautiful woman, a betula, uh, no one, no man had ever slept with her. That's in Genesis twenty four sixteen. So the Rishonim say you don't have to say both. You can say she's a virgin. You don't have to redundantly say no man had slept with her. And Rashi expresses the fact that not every virgin is necessarily innocent. In ancient times, a young woman could guard her virginity but still act promiscuously. And so Rashi adds, therefore, Scripture teaches us that she, Rivka, was innocent of all of that too. Right? Remember last week we talked about Sarah being 20 like she was seven, that kind of innocence. So if she was a virgin, no man knew her, obviously. So then there are two types of virginity. One type pertains to a young woman who's not had literal intercourse, but the other is someone who has preserved their sexual innocence. That's what Avram saw, according to the Midrash. And we will shortly see that Rivka was the first one to have sought God and the first one in the Chumash uh, to have been spoken uh, to by God directly. So she is considered in the Medrash Tanhuma as a prophetess because God said to her, two nations are in your womb. Let's talk about this active and passive. She's already chosen by Abraham, but she's active in the sense that uh, she's a pious woman. 
she is uh, chaste. All the all the midrashic tropes about rabbinic notions of femininity, <laughs> rabbinic notions of what an ideal woman is. We can use the image of Rivka as we met her by the well as a classic betrothal scene. And Robert Alter, in his brilliant literary analysis of the Bible, writes, The role played here by the bridegroom and the bride is a pointed divergence from convention. Isaac is conspicuous by his absence at the well, unlike Jacob, unlike Abraham. This is, in fact, the only instance where a surrogate, rather than the man himself, meets the girl at the well. That substitution nicely accords with the entire career of Isaac, for he is manifestly the most passive of patriarchs. We have already seen him as bound victim on the Arcada, for whose life a substitute was a ram. As a father, he will prefer the son who go, can go out into the field and bring him back provender. And his one extended scene will be lying in bed weak and blind while others act on him, upon him, behind him. As a complement to this absence of the bridegroom, it is only in the betrothal scene that the girl, not the stranger, draws water from the well as the Chumash goes out of its way to give weight to this act by presenting Rivka as a continuous whirl of purposeful activity. So Yitzchok does not choose his wife, she is chosen for him. Rivka is very much present and very impressive, and the Torah relays about her kindness, as I said, and her industriousness. The irony of that scene is that on the one hand Yitzchak is not there, but on the other hand he is the center of the mission. He is the entire motivation for Eliezer's expedition. And this heightens the sense that Zornberg will tell us that Yitzchok lives in the shadows, allowing others to act partially eclipsed. Even at the moment of meeting between them, which I will now describe, he is simply standing in a field where Rivka is riding a camel full of activity and of all the Ovos, Yitzchok is surely, therefore, the most passive. From the Akeda onwards, he becomes a passive player in his life. Now, I'm going to share my screen with you, because I've learnt how to do this. <laughs> and you can see the Psukim, where they first meet. And where they first meet, Vayetze Yitzchok Lasuach Basode. And Isaac goes out into the field at evening times to meditate. And he goes up and he sees camels approaching. Now, Rivka, so what does he see? He only sees camels in the distance. He doesn't see her. But Rivka opens her eyes or lifts up her eyes. Vateres Yitzchok, and she sees Isaac, and Vatipol me'al hagamal. She, well, I want to translate that tipol, the literal re translation, and she fell. She fell from the cam, and she asks the slave, "Who is this man approaching us?" And he says, "It is my master." Eliezer responds, and she takes the veil and covers her her face. So 
the narrator is telling us she lifts up her eyes and she sees Yitzchak, meaning the narrator is telling us what who is she seeing. She does not know who he is until Eliezer says that. And the moment he says that, she covers herself with the veil. Now, what is this falling from the camel? This strange falling, which I want to say informed my reading later on of Zornberg's idea of her womb and the, the, the struggling in the womb. Her strange falling or even alighting from the camel before she knew the identity of the stranger in the field uh, puzzles the commentators. Likewise, her act of face covering raises certain questions. Rashi says, well, she covered her face because she saw his lordly appearance and gazed at him in astonishment. This notion of astonishment, as if to say she was impressed by his dignified visage. Now, others see the entire episode differently. The most fascinating is the comment of the Nitziv. Rivka looked up and saw Yitzchok while he was in prayer. He looked like an angel of God, fearful in appearance. And as a result, she fell off the camel from fright. She did not know who he was. She covered her face with a veil from fear and embarrassment, as if with a realization that she was not worthy to be his wife. And now Siv says this most dramatic, one of the most dramatic Sivs in the Fumish, that ever since that moment, there would always be a sense of trepidation in her heart. This was not an equal relationship. Her relationship with Yitzhak was very, very different from Sarah's with Avram or Rachel and Yaakov. With them, if there was a problem, they would not be afraid to confront their husband, talk it through. This was not the case with Rivka. Notice how psychological the Nitziv is. This notion of the ego, right, and the sense of self and interaction with others. Very, very modern idea. And this is the story of the prologue to our Parsha told us, where Yitzchok and Rivka have different opinions regarding Yaakov and Esau. But she could never bring herself to confront Yitzchok about the truth that she felt regarding Esau. And that happened because of this original moment of meeting, which would then be translated into her deceit and her ruse, etc. So the Nitziv pinpoints two things for us. First is Yitzchok's spiritual intensity. Remember, he's an Ola Tamid, a pure and perfect sacrifice, an angel of God. So watching Yitzchok davening is a fearful sight. They say about the Kedushas Levi that if you were in the base medrash of the Kedushas Levi, he would start at one end of the room and he would end up at the other and he would be doing somersaults and lying on his face and grabbing the Orana Kodesh. I mean, it was a fateful sight. I never forgot when I was introduced first to the Tosha Rebbe, north of Montreal, one January in 1996. We were stuck in Montreal airport because of the snowstorm in Kennedy. And uh, I was taken to the Tosha Rebbe and he davened Myriv with his little minion in his little mm. alcove at like one in the morning. I'd never seen anyone, anyone ever davening 
like the Tosher. I mean, it was a sight to behold. I was so jealous of the intensity of his devotion. It wasn't just piety. His whole body was jumping and every word came out of him. I think that's what comes here from the sight of Yitzchok. We could suggest that Yitzchok never quite came down from Haram HaMaria. He always had some of that fire of the Akedah. The second point from the Nazif is the effect of this state on his relationships. The self-assured Rukka, the, the doer, the one who fed the camels with 500 gallons of water, loses confidence in the face of the spiritual whirlwind that is Yitzchok. We do not so much as witness Yitzchok and Rivka conversing in their initial meeting. In fact, the Torah barely records them speaking to each other at all. The first words they say to each other in the Torah's narrative is only after the explosive episode of the blessings. In a family so need of communication, silence reigns throughout. In the Natsiv's reading, Rivka is incapable of communication with Yitzchok. She's in awe of him. And when a sensitive situation arises, she cannot discuss things with him. This, says the Natsiv, is the source of many of the problems uh, in our Parsha. Now, she becomes pregnant. But only after 40 years, and I show you in the next posuk, Genesis 25, 21, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. It's interesting that some commentators said that he was barren too. Uh, they hadn't had an ability to have a child. And what made him barren? There are interesting ideas of what made him barren. Someone who had been exposed to Harha Maria, who had seen the angels. Uh, Isaac's life from then on was a series of tragedies and traumas. And his blindness may have come because of the angels' tears fell upon him, or because he'd looked up and seen what he shouldn't have seen, the Divine Presence, or because of his blind devotion to the wicked Esau. But his impotence then could well have been a result of having seen too much. And, but it, the narrator says, because she was barren. Vayet alo Hashem, and God let himself be entreated in the Nifal. Vatarva Rivka Ishto, and she became pregnant. And this pregnancy was excruciating. And the Medrash takes it even further to emphasize the excruciating pregnancy and life-threatening difficulty through delivery. Uh, the Psikta says that Esau ripped up his mother's womb such that she couldn't have any more children. Uh, but Rebecca, Rebecca remained a loving mother to both of them. And then she says, Let's go into this existential cry of what does that mean? Remember the Ishbitzer had this most amazing notion that the Onochi is the Onochi of God's representation and introduction of himself at Har Sinai. Im zeh, im kain, lama zeh, 
If that is so, that this child, remember, she didn't know it was twins at that point. This child that's struggling within me, that's pulled to the base of medrash of shame and wants to come out every time I pass the base medrash. And every time I pass the Mokham Avodah Zorah, he wants to come out. This schizophrumi kid of mine, Lomozer, why was he created in the sense of to be present? This is going to be the future of Am Yisrael that's going to meet you, the Onochi at Har Sinai. And remember, for the Ishbitzer, Onochi isn't just Onochi like Ani. Ani is I in my existence. The Onochi has a Chof in it. Now, the Chof makes everything in Hebrew contingent, right? It's like the bread of affliction. So the Chof in Onochi represents the incomplete, the provisional, the metaphorical nature of God's revelation. The identifying himself as an I, yet not I. And Zornberg beautifully takes that notion of the cry, the cri du chat, the cri du coeur, this existential cry that comes from the pit of her womb, that she cries out, Lomo ze onochi, that is the same onochi that God will use at Harsinai. She is ma- turning back on God and saying, what is this for? Is this what the future is for? And even worse, this Ani is no longer an Ani. It is an Ani, an I, yet a not I. So what does she know in, what does she know at this point? She thinks it's only one child, Vatelech Lidrosh Ed Adonai. And so as a result, she goes to inquire of God. She doesn't go to Yitzchak and say, what's going on? Like Sora did and like Rachel did, complained him. She goes, Lidrosh et Adonai. Um, the Medrash says she goes to the yeshiva of Shem Eva, or she goes to Avraham to ask him. She goes to an oracle. And the oracle really is very, like all oracles in, in the ancient world, it, it's really up to the perceiver who goes to the oracle to interpret the oracle. Shnei goyim bevitnech. Okay, it's not, tw- it's not one child, it's twins. And they will become two great nations. And now the enigmatic that she must interpret the stronger, the one people shall be stronger and the other and the elder shall serve the younger. What does that mean? It all depends on your interpretation, like in every other oracle. What does Rebecca know? She begins a chain of deceit which forms a fault line in Jacob's family history. And this fault line, she is privy to a direct oracle about the chosen boy, the chosen one, but never tells her husband Isaac when she comes back. Instead, she acts in subterfuge to fulfill God's will. So their marriage was initially marked by a barren period of two decades, after which he appeals to God, is immediately answered, but instead of the seamless and she conceived and bore which characterizes the birth scenarios in other pregnancies of Genesis, complications in her pregnancy arise and she becomes the first biblical character to go and seek God. 
and the struggle in the womb foreshadows the events that ensue. The mortal combat between the brothers in the womb becomes the mortal combat of the brothers arguing over the birthright and the blessing. And the, for Rivka, Edelman says beautifully, it impales a key sense of the discrepancy between the outward smoothness of her belly, her chalak of her belly, and the painful tumult within. And remember, Jacob will say to her, but ani chalak, I am smooth, I'm not hairy, and my brother is hairy. There's this combination and opposition between that which is smooth, that which is tumultuous, smooth on the outside, but tumultuous within. And so she confronts, she doesn't confront him, and Zornberg, drawing on the Ramban, understands Rebecca's appeal as an existential question. Her creed occur is comparable to Job. Why did I not die at birth, expire as I came forth from the womb? Zornberg, in a beautifully midrashic trope, compares the Lomo Zeonochi of Rivka with Job's cry to God, if this is true and you are so powerful and all this has happened, why was I born? She expresses a death wish even as she is in the throes of the intensity of her pregnant self. Unlike Job, who wishes the womb to be his tomb, Rivka is the womb, the belly, the entrails. She not only questions the natality of her condition, but is the very body in which the human life uncannily originates. And so for Zornberg, in her psychoanalytical reading based on the British psychiatrist Winnicott, says that She's keenly aware of the simultaneous presence and absence of meaning. And internalizing that fear, she is embodied in her womb-bound knowledge. Bekirba, her Bekirba, Zornberg says, is Rivka as an anagram of Kirba, her interior. She will hear, bear the burden of knowing the inner workings of God's plan in her body while dressing it up in borrowed clothing as the boys grow up. Okay, so let's go back to that veiling of Rivka. She covers herself with the veil and this veiling, I think, is the veiling both of her face and the veiling also of her life and her relationship. So the eyes don't meet and she covers her face with the veil. By the way, that's the whole minag of Badekin in a Jewish marriage. Let's go back to the vatipol. We had mentioned that the, the idea has a vertiginous quality to it. She falls off the camel. Now, no fell can mean to fall or to descend. And there's a big difference between falling and descending. How do we understand that ambivalence of coming off the camel? The first way we could understand it, as I've already mentioned, is respect, as a mark of respect. Um, and that's according to the Radak. It teaches derecheretz and modesty and sneers 
for a woman to be shy in front of her fiancé. The second I mentioned to you was the Nitziv. She fell off the camel out of fear. The Sforno suggests that her veil was a game because she was afraid to look at his face. And I, I mentioned the Nitziv's understanding. The third could be that she fell off the camel out of shock, but it was a romantic shock. There's a parallel between the two psukim in the story. And the Tzror Hamor suggests that this parallelism is to teach us that Yitzchok and Rivka were soulmates. It's the exact equivalent of the romantic cliché their eyes met across a crowded room. Afterwards, an embarrassed and blushing bride, she covers her face. Now, I want to take it one step deeper and to tell you that this riding on a camel for the Arizal and taking it one step deeper into the secrets of Torah, that this riding of the camel is in fact, according to the Arizal, was the riding of the Nachash HaKadmoni. So that Rivka Imenu is a Gilgul, a reincarnation of sorrow. And the camel is a reincarnation of the serpent. And Isaac is a reincarnation of Otomarishon. So when she sees, she saw he was a magnificent and was astounded by him and falls, she lets herself down to the ground and Targum Onkler says she inclined herself to the earth, but she did not reach the earth. So what does that mean? She let herself down. She was moved by falling off, meaning she's riding the primeval serpent and she sees in Yitzchok a fixing, the ability to fix, to be mitakein, the sin of Odoma Rishon. A humble man riding upon a donkey, Zechariah 9.9, is the Mashiach. And she is riding this same animal, a Gilgul of Chava, alluding to the Nochosh. She was returning to the same circumstances. The Bible now is a recycling, a recycling of the same original story, original myth that comes through every generation. She's returning to the same circumstances under which she, Chava, encountered the Nachash when it still had feet and resembled a camel before the, before the curse. This time, Rivka performs tshuva for her initial failure. Let's go back to Zornberg. I want to take it one step further by now taking the secrets of Torah, meaning that everything we do is a kind of reincarnation and revitalizing that original mythical story of the fall of the Adam, the inculcation of self-knowledge and self-awareness, the need to have children in pain. And let's go back and pick up where Aviva Zonberg left off, who says, in pregnancy, Rivka is positioned at the place where she knows her difference from herself as she struggles to express the unfathomable sense of Onochi. Onochi. I was here, the Onochi lo yadar. You'll hear Jacob say that when he has that night epiphany with the angel. 
that onochi, the I, yet not I. The pregnancy becomes the matrix for that which is still unthinkable. Rather than assuring her that she is capable of birthing a whole baby, who is coherent, whose descendants will stand stably at Sinai to receive God's revelation. And here's the kicker. In a beautiful, dazzling commentary, Zornberg says, God implants in her a conviction of internal disunity, of opposites, in which the other is constantly implicated in the self. I'll say that again. God implants in her a conviction of internal disunity. She went to the oracle to find out what's going on, uh, to find out how do I go to pain management to get rid of this horrific pain of this child that's struggling in my belly. And the oracle tells her, I'm giving you a conviction of internal disunity. The disunity of opposites in which the other is constantly implicated in the self. An internal otherness challenges her sense of autonomy, autonomy and paradoxically establishes her subjectivity. I just was thrilled by that interpretation. And I want to take it one step further. I want to take it from the psychoanalytical, because that's exactly what Winnicott theory of childhood development in his object relations theory about the developing the sense of an otherness within you and how does one deal with that i want to take that a little bit step further theologically i am after all <laughs> at the end a post-holocaust theologian and for me that sense of internal disunity that god is implanting in her is precisely the comfort I take in my existential journey through life, in which for me there is this sense of strangeness and otherness within me. And you can call it the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah Tov, the Yaakov and the Aesop that constantly are fighting each other, the head and the heart, the head that says, what are you talking about? How could you possibly believe in all this stuff after what's happened? And the heart that gets moved by a Tosha Rebbe Dovning, to be quite honest, I was moved to tears. That schizofrumkite within, that in the year 2020 we're going through this horrific ordeal and we're losing people we know. And we're going, Lidrosh Hashem? Guess what he, guess what the oracle is going to implant in us? He's going to implant in us a mirror of ourselves. Vatelech Lidrosh. Adonai, what is the response? Vayome Adonai, Shnei Goyim Bevitnech. Yeah, that is the human condition. The human condition is to mirror the divine condition. And I brought you that Zoyar and the Arizal to tell you that whatever happens in the Gan Eden is happening upstairs. We're just a reflection of what's happening upstairs. There's the Nochash upstairs, the Nochash HaKadmoni. He's the Euroborus that circles the universe. There is the Odom HaKadmon, the reflection of God's image, and the Chava, the Shekhinah. 
And so for me, what's so healing about this, it's not a moralistic, pietistic whitewash. Yes, she's very, very pious. Yes, she's Sanua. Yes, she's all of that. But at the end of the day, she has to engage in subterfuge to make sure that the Yaakov comes out. And that's how we have to deal with the Yetzirah within. We have to take our cue from Rivka Imenu. She becomes the real matriarch of dealing with the dark side within. After all, Rivka is the Shechina. Rivka is the Shechina. And so I bless us all to understand that the discrepancy within us, the struggles that we face, in Cain Loma Ze Onochi, this provisional, indeterminate sense of self that Zomberg elegantly projected onto our matriarch, in fact, is a theological position that we can hold on to keep us going through these troubled times. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone.